If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the book of Jeremiah. And I want you to find the 42nd chapter, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 42, as we continue this sermon series called Landfall. And today, you may be shocked, I want to talk about obeying God. (laughs) We've been obeying God and dealing with the subject of obedience to God for the better part of a year, and we find ourselves in the 42nd and the 43rd chapter. Last week, we camped a lot in chapter 39, but chapters 40 and 41 really are a summary of the events that unfolded in chapter 39. Let me catch you up, and for those of you who are visiting with us today, you are our honored guest, and those of you watching online, Jeremiah is a prophet. He was not a bullfrog. Jeremiah is a prophet. Jeremiah was called by God to prophesy for over 40 years to the nation of Judah. He was called to give bad news, but news that required hope. The bad news was is that through idolatry, and immorality, the people of God had grown incredibly wicked and prideful, and God, like any loving father, was about to bring divine discipline. The discipline would come in the form of the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans. King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC marches on Jerusalem and destroys it completely. When he does, the vast majority of Israel is exiled The word exile, of course, in the English, the root is ex, exit, leave, exile above every door in this worship center is a sign. It begins with the two letters, E-X, when we exit something, to be exiled is to be taken out, to leave from. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians exiled most of Israel back to their home nation. And therefore, there was only a small amount of people left in a destroyed city filled with burning ashes, a place that would be very difficult to live. The Bible refers to those few people as a remnant. They were left. Jeremiah stays with them. There are a lot of reasons that Jeremiah stays, but one of the calls of a prophet is that no matter how people behave or act, he does not abandon them. He does not leave them. He continues to speak God's word into their lives. He does not allow the behavior and the faithfulness of his people to determine his commitment. He just keeps preaching because he is for his people. He is not against them. He is not an enemy of God's people. He is pro-God in their life. And so Jeremiah is there. And they were faced with a decision The crops, the vineyards, the buildings, the storehouses had all been destroyed. Imagine trying to care for the elderly. Imagine trying to care for your wives and husbands. Imagine trying to care for the young, the infants, when there is no economy, when there is no city, when there is no wall, when there is no fresh water, and there are no crops in the field. And so this small remnant is at an intersection. What do we do? And one of the mistakes that they had made for years and years and years (coughs) is instead of trusting the Lord God, they would make alliances with pagan nations. And one of those nations that had offered a refuge was the nation of Egypt. The Egyptians and the Babylonians were both fighting for power in the Middle East. This is documented in historical narratives in addition to the Bible. And so there came to be this point where the leader said, you know what? We don't need to stay here. 
God may have left us here for a reason, but we don't need to stay here. Let's just go down to Egypt. At least we'll eat in Egypt. But something interesting happens. Right in the middle of this decision-making, for some reason, they decide, before we go, let's see if it's God's will. Now, it's a bit ironic that a group of people who had continually rejected God's will decided in chapter 42, we're going to ask Jeremiah what God's will is. Look at your copy of God's word in Jeremiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant. Remember, I've just told you what the remnant is. Because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us. In other words, Jeremiah, there ain't many of us. Verse three, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah, the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. By the way, that may be one of the best power-packed verses of a prophet or a preacher. I will not hold it back from you. I will give you the whole counsel of God's word. And this is what Jeremiah committed to do. Verse 5. Then they said to Jeremiah, and listen to this because it sounds so good. May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends to you, sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now just pause right there. I can only imagine that this is as sweet as honey to Jeremiah's ears. He has spent his life preaching to stubborn people who will not repent. All the false prophets have been proven to be false because they were the ones saying, oh, the Babylonians are not going to bother us. And now, Jeremiah is standing there after the city has been destroyed. Now, interestingly, <coughs> interestingly, what happens is that they come to Jeremiah and they begin to use language that would get any spiritual leader's attention. Tell us what God's will is and we will do it. And we vow before you that whatever the will of the Lord is, that is what we shall do with our lives. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of problems that are solved in people's lives today when they get to that point. When they say, I'm just going to do what God says I'm supposed to do. In fact, if you've ever studied true biblical counseling, not counseling influenced by worldliness, I'm talking about counseling and in, inspired by the word of God, what you'll find is that it requires a sensitivity and a genuine desire to really hear the struggles people are having. It is not one that blows past all of who they are, but at the core of it 
it always comes back to this. Do I obey the Lord God or do I obey my feelings? Sometimes my feelings are right on, but many times my feelings come from a heart that is deceptive. And these people, it seems, had gotten to a point, and you would imagine it makes sense. They look around and everything Jeremiah had said had come true. Their lives had been totally destroyed. Many of their family members were gone, having been exiled, never to see them again. And so if you've ever wanted to see people at the intersection of brokenness before God, yet hope for the future, these people are there. And so they say, go tell us what God would say. Now look what happens beginning in verse 7. At the end of the 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Now I love that. Don't miss this. Notice that God's on God's time and not Jeremiah's. Even Jeremiah had to wait 10 days. We could preach right there for the rest of our morning. God has not obligated himself to answer you on your timeline. Because what you don't see is the timeline of all of history and how he's working in your life in ways you can't even imagine. Here's Jeremiah, one of the most righteous and faithful prophets in the Old Testament. And even he didn't dial up God or text God for an immediate answer. He waited 10 days for the Lord to speak. No doubt, and scholars argue, that one of the reasons that there is a 10-day gap is that Jeremiah wanted to make sure that he discerned the will of God. I recognize there are moments in life where we have to step out on, on obedience and we don't have a lot of time to think. But the pattern of God is that he's a God of order that he's a God of thought, that he's a God who's given us our ability to rationalize and reason. And so anytime you're facing a major decision in your life, if you're at a crossroads, one of the alternatives is to just wait on the Lord. It doesn't mean you wait in inactive state of disobedience, but you put yourself in a position where if you don't have clarity, you look into your life and you say, is there anything in my life that is disobeying the Lord? I want to stop that, obviously. But if I am in a place of obedience and I have sought the Lord and I have purged my motives before him and his word, I'm going to wait on his clarity. I think in my life, there are times when I try to get ahead of the timing of God and it always either complicates things or convolutes things and both confuse me. But when I wait and trust in him, I wait actively, continuing to do the things I know he's called me to do. But when I wait, I'm saying it's not my timeline. It's not my agenda and it's not my will. I'm seeking your will. And so Jeremiah waited 10 days and then look what the Bible says beginning in verse 8. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders and the forces who were with him and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. Now, here's God's answer. Verse 10, here's what he says. <clears throat> if you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not... Fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, and he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. So there's God's answer. God says, don't go. 
Trust me. Now, this is the same answer he's been given for the last 41 chapters, is it not? If you will not seek to manipulate your situation with geopolitical alliances of pagan kings, if you will trust me, I will no longer destroy you, I will plant you. I will no longer tear you down, I will build you. I will not remove you or pluck you, I will ingrain you and root you. And by the way, in chapter 1, way back over a year ago when we preached about Jeremiah's call, Jeremiah was called to tear down and to build up, to see destruction and to plant. So God has spoken. Let me remind you of three truths around the subject of obedience. Number one, number one, it's important for you and I to be reminded of the clarity and the will of God's direction in our life. There is grace in knowing God is not silent. The clarity of his will and direction is an amazing blessing in our life. And why is this? Because God has the right to ask for obedience. What did Samuel say in the book of 2 Samuel? Samuel said this, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's really wrapped up in the law, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better or than the fat of rams. Now, Samuel is saying, you've got your Levitical system, you've got your sacrifices, you have your religious rituals, God gave you those, but the spirit of those is to put you in a position where the posture of your heart is to obey the Lord. This is what God is after. Isn't it good to know that the Father knows something? I've got a three-year-old, and I don't trust her. I don't trust her. She's incredibly smart, smarter than all my boys, which is not saying a lot, but she's smart. Yesterday, I'd been traveling this week, and so yesterday I got up, and we got two puppies in the house, I threw them out in the backyard, and she and I were talking, and sometimes she chooses to interact with me, and sometimes she doesn't. She basically allows me into her life on her terms. She's blonde, and that's kind of a pattern for me. I didn't marry a blonde for that reason. So she said, Dad, she spoke to me. That was a plus, you know. I said, what? She said, who are you? I said, Dad. She said, what is this? I said, nose. She said, what am I holding? I said, nothing. She went, Dad knows nothing. And she smiled. And there, you know, the demon and the angel on my shoulders. I'm like, you little smart aleck. And then I'm like, how is she this smart? She said, Dad knows nothing. I have no idea where she learned that. Probably Blue's Clues, but I have no idea where she learned that. And I thought to myself, there are so many times in my life where that is true. I am incredibly limited in what I know and what you know, which is why it is such an amazing truth of grace that our God, who is our heavenly father, has not remained silent. 
He has laid out his will. Now, this doesn't mean that life can't be confusing. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with complex situations. But the vast majority of what I'm supposed to do in my life is clearly outlined in his word. And don't you think it's such a picture of grace that God would have every right to take Jeremiah out and say, you know what, I'm tired of speaking to these people. I spoke to these people through Jeremiah for 40 years. At this point, Jeremiah's in his 60s. I spoke to these people for 40 years, and they would not listen. And now they're going to ask my will, and yet, what does God do? What is his pattern? Even when God expresses anger, even when God expresses frustration, even when God expresses discouragement over the sins of his people, he never stops making his will clear to you and me. He clearly gives us guidance and direction. A few weeks ago, when we were talking about the subject of obedience, I gave you a brief overview, and I had so many people reach out and ask for it again. It's just a simple list of the commands Jesus made on our lives. So if you want to know some direction in your life, Jesus commanded you to do these things, and he commanded me to do them, to be born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. Jesus commanded us to love the Lord with all of our heart. He commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if I disrespect or dislike or discourage someone on purpose, I am disobeying God. He said, if there's anything in your life that causes you to sin, you need to get rid of that. Whatever it may be, if you're in a dating relationship that is causing you to sin, you've got to redefine that relationship. If you're in a work environment that is causing you to struggle in your walk, you've got to seriously consider changing that environment or changing the relationships that you're in. If you have made a series of decisions that have gotten you in a bind, you've got to own them, voice them, repent of them, and move away. This is not a suggestion. This is not general guidance. Jesus has made his will very clear. He said that we are to love our enemies. This is easy to practice. Just read the headlines. Every news story I read is someone who has lost their mind. And I'm reminded before I go to bitterness and anger and hate, how would I think and act if I didn't know Jesus? How would I operate if I didn't have a biblical worldview? And so I try to get to pity. Say, Lord, I want to pray for that person and not have animosity and anger toward them. Christ said to give generously. We are going into my favorite week of the year. I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. It's got all the elves, football, food, fellowship. I like that. And so this is a time when we are extremely grateful. One of the greatest ways to express gratefulness is not to voice it, but to be the reason someone else is grateful. Give that it may be given to you so that you may reap. Jesus said, care for those who are in need. I challenge you, mom and dad, over the next month to involve your children in finding a way to significantly bless a family that's less fortunate. Don't do it pridefully. Don't do it boastfully. Do it quietly. But involve your children in the decisions you make to take the hard-earned money that you have and the resources and bless someone who is less fortunate than you. 
He says, let your light shine before men. Make disciples. We're not there yet, but you're going to blink, and it's going to be New Year's Eve. You're going to blink. You saw that we've begun the Christmas decorations here, and by next week, the place will look incredible. It's one of our most favorite times of the year. And invariably, after we finish the rush of Christmas, we begin to think about 2022. What, what do we want to do more faithfully? And I find many Christians asking that question. I find many people who love the Lord Jesus that say, you know what, how can I be more faithful in 2022? I go back to the very last thing Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. Go and make disciples. Attending church is a part of being a disciple, but that's not making a disciple. Singing passionately under the leadership of this incredible team that leads us weekly is a part of your walk with Jesus, and it can be a model to those around you, but it's not making a disciple. Making a disciple is carving out some time in your life, in your life, to invite someone in who might not be as far along in their walk and pour into them and love them and encourage them. And, of course, one of the last things that Jesus commanded us to be is to be ready for his return. Live your life in such a way so that if you're caught doing a medial task or you're making a major decision, you'd be proud for the Lord to show up. These are the things that he has asked us to do. And the reality is I'm so grateful we don't have a silent God, that we don't have a God of folklore a God who depended on an oral tradition, or we're not trapped in some world religion filled with legalism or many gods where you pick and choose how you describe and navigate your spirituality. God has spoken, and there is grace in his clarity, and he spoke here. He made it perfectly clear. But I want to remind you of something else. Secondly, the conflict in the human heart of our wants and desires. You know when I get most excited about the will of God? I'm confessing. I tend to get most excited about the will of God when I feel like the will of God matches what I want. I don't know if you've ever made a decision and then run to Jesus. Would you just bless this? I know this, is, this has got to be your will. I'm so fired up about this. This is a great opportunity. This is a great person to spend time with. This is a great investment. This is a great decision I've made. Man, we hop into the presence of God. God, I've got it. I'm here. Can you bless it for me? And then, wait a minute. But it, there's that check in our spirit. Maybe someone we trust says, mm, did you think about this? Or maybe we remind ourselves that what we want and desire often does not line up with the will of God. And why is that? It's not because you start the day to bow up against God. It's because you started your life with a heart that is bent towards sin due to the fall of man. In fact, watch it on full display. Now, remember the sincerity. Now, Jeremiah, you go to God and you ask him, are we going to go to Egypt? And you tell us what God's will is. And whatever he says, we will do. So they're waiting. You wait well, I don't wait well. They're waiting. They didn't wait an hour. They didn't wait a day. They didn't wait a week. They waited 10 days. What do you wait on for 10 days? I struggle to wait on anything. They waited for 10 days. So you can imagine the angst, the tension. Come on, man, we already packed up. We're ready to go. We're gassed up. 
we had to refinance our house to gas up, but we're gassed up. We're ready to go. We're on our way. Give us the blessing. And God told Jeremiah to tell him, don't go. And look what happens. Beginning somewhere around verse 1 of chapter 43. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words, the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshea, and Johanan the son of Korea, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, there's a little hint there, you are telling a lie. <laughs> You're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Barak, the son of Nereah, now these are people who they believe are their enemies, has set you against us to deliver us into the hands of the Chaldeans that he may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. There's so much here, watch this. When people disagree with the will of God, they'll attack the messenger. And the way they attack the messenger is to discredit him. There is no way that can be the will of God, so you must be a liar. Now, remember where Jeremiah is standing. He's standing on the rubble of a city that all their prophets said would never fall. But Jeremiah said it's going to fall. Him standing there is evidence. I don't lie. I told you the truth. And if you're looking for a second bullet in the gun to this argument, here it is. You asked me. You came to me. Surely you could have found some other pauper. You could have found some other person. You could have found some other figure. You could have found some other prophet or prophetess, some spiritual uh, divination specialist. You came to me and you said, whatever God tells you, we're going to do. And so he tells them after 10 days and they say, oh, you are lying. And it is illustrative of the struggle we deal with. Now, you and I may think, oh man, pastor, I would never do that. You better than Paul? The Apostle Paul? You know what he says? Maybe one of my favorite verses about this struggle. I've shared it several times. Paul, in dealing with this tension between obeying God and my wants and desires, says, for we know that the law is spiritual. In other words, God's commands come from him, and they are spiritual acts of obedience. But I am of the flesh. Paul says, I'm, 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 I'm a sinner. I, I, I tend to do what God would not want me to do. Sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever been there? Can somebody say amen to that? You ever looked at yourself in the mirror and said, self, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I do not understand my own actions. Now, this is Paul who wrote the theological masterpiece known as the book of Romans. I'm still trying to figure out chapter 9. Known as the book of Romans. This is a guy who spoke several languages, was an intellectual giant, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he says, I do not understand my own actions. Why? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on to talk about it in the next verse. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18 cleans it up. Watch this. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Paul's not saying that God's grace isn't all over his life. Paul's not condemning humanity. There is common grace and value in every person. This is why we believe every human being has dignity and worth and value because they are a reflection of their creator. Some people who try to understand the theology of sin think that Christians just want to bash humanity. No, we want to save humanity, and we don't save humanity by improving humanity. We save humanity by pointing to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who gave his life to redeem us from the curse of sin that we might walk in the newness of life that he gives us when he indwells us by covering us with his blood and indwelling us through the Holy Spirit. That's the hope for humanity. Paul knew that hope. He had that hope and was a Christian, a bona fide, spirit-filled, walking, talking testimony of God's grace. And yet, as he articulates the struggle, this is what he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out now this has often been illustrated in humanity by that devil on one shoulder and that angel on the other Uh, and that's a cartoonist way of trying to articulate the struggle that we all have the world would say trust your heart find your truth go after your happiness Take care of yourself. Self-care has become the gospel of the world. Yeah, I've been around long enough to find the people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are most fulfilled. And do you know what most fulfilled them? Not seeking what was best for themselves, but giving their life for others. They were defined as soldiers, fathers, mothers, employees, members who built a better world because they gave of themselves. And I seem to remember a Savior saying, if you really want to save your life, lose it. If you want to be first, be last. If you want to be lifted up, stoop to serve. Lifting myself up, fighting for first, wanting what I want comes very naturally to me. I've never had to tell my heart to feel pride. I don't have to tell my heart to get angry. I don't have to tell my eyes to wander in lust. I, I, don't, I don't have to tell my emotions to react when someone hurts me or hurts someone close to me. That just comes naturally. I was born with that. But when the Spirit of God lives in you through a relationship with Christ, you fight that battle and you recognize that while we don't have the ability to win it, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And the more you feed the Spirit of God with the Word of God, then the child of God becomes equipped with the soldier's equipment, the armor of God, to fight the battle of God first in our lives. Everybody in this room likes the idea of being able to help other people in their walk. Everybody. Can I just tell you the greatest thing you could ever do to influence other people is to make sure your walk is where it needs to be. That there is an obedience through the struggle. And the reason is seen in the way this chapter ends. It's the terrible consequences of willful disobedience. 
God said, okay, you're not going to obey me? Here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 8 in chapter 43. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Tephanus. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar and the pavement that is in the entrance of Pharaoh's palace. See, they took Jeremiah. They said, we going. You a liar. And you going with us. Jeremiah had to go with them against his own will. Now, this has been a pattern in Jeremiah's life. He's been whisked around by evil humanity, even as he served the Lord. So God says, when you get to Egypt, right there in front of Pharaoh's gate, take some large stones and lay them down, put them in the mortar, and I'm going to make a covenant over those stones. Look what he says. And say to them, verse 10, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his stone throne above these stones that I have hidden and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity, those who are doomed to captivity, to the sword, those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt. He shall burn them and carry them away captive. He shall clean the land of Egypt as shepherds cleaned his cloak of vermin. He shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisks, at the Helipolis, which is in the hand of, land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt shall burn with fire. God basically said, you willfully disobey me. I am going to discipline you and the people you have infected with your disobedience. Let me leave you two simple thoughts. I'll put them on the screen. You will never regret obeying God. I've yet to meet the person to regret obeying God. Secondly, you'll never benefit from disobeying God. If you're here today and there's an area of your life that is in disobedience to God's word, I have no anger for you. There is not an ounce of judgment in me. I don't desire that you feel or are made to feel condemned. But the reality is the disobedience if allowed to manifest itself in your life, will not stay where it is. You cannot control it. Sin is a cancer. Who of you, if diagnosed with an aggressive cancer, a tumor would tell the doctor to only take half of it out? No, no, no. You would take it all out, take some good cells around it, and then hit it with radiation and chemo to make sure that it is dead so it doesn't infect your body. I fear that we don't take sin seriously enough. And I'll tell you why. We haven't looked to the cross enough. The greatest example of obedience in the Bible is not Jeremiah, it's Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Philippians that Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You think he felt like going up Calvary? You think it made sense to the world around him? Do you think that he desired to die? In fact, in the garden the night before, he begged the Father that this cup pass from me. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. So if you're struggling to obey, when you choose God's will over your feelings, you are following your Savior most beautifully. Let me remind you of that. Would you bow your head with me?
this morning, I thought we would end differently. I'd like for you to allow the Spirit of God to identify an area of your life where there needs to be more obedience. I I don't know what that is. It can be something related to a substance. It could be your relationship with alcohol, food, legal or illegal drugs. You, you, You may be here and you may be dating someone and you're living with them or you're sexually active with them and you know that is not God's will. That is an area of disobedience. Maybe there's a wedge in your family and Thanksgiving and Christmas always brings it back up and there's some deep hurt. You may not can control what happened and I'm not saying it's your fault, but if you've harbored bitterness, that is an act of disobedience. You may have a terrible work situation but it has allowed your attitude to grow sour and you've stopped being light and hope grace and faithfulness in front of the people you work with you know you need this job but more than that you need to go and work as unto the Lord obey him in that you may be a young man in this room who has cracked open the door of pornography into your life. It is a powerful and demonic tool. You'll probably never defeat it by yourself. Most men don't. But as an act of obedience, perhaps even this week, you would reach out to someone you trust and say, I need some help. I need some accountability. I want my mind and my eyes to be pure for my wife or the woman of my future who will become my wife. Maybe you have a terribly low sense of self-worth. You don't feel good about how you look, how you feel, how you perform. Friend, I just want you to know that if you allow yourself to dwell on how unworthy you've determined yourself to be, you are denying that God celebrates over you, that he loves you, that he made you in his image and he has a purpose for your life. And that dwelling on your failures is, a sin, in a sense, selfishness. It's not arrogance, but you become so consumed with your own sense of low self, you stop making your life about others. You stop adding value to other situations. Now, you know that any person with oratory ability could stand up here and articulate a thousand scenarios. I'm not going to do that. I'm just trying to illustrate that all of us have areas where we could obey more faithfully. I want you to identify those and I want you to do something about it. Heavenly Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we're ending before you. All over this room, people are identifying areas where they have disobeyed And they need your grace and your love, your forgiveness. You are so good to give it. You did not bring one person into this room or one person online today to stone them, to condemn them, to reject them. You love repentant people. And so I pray for repentance that men and women in this service 
would repent of any area of disobedience and by your grace and strength would walk in the newness of life you've promised through Christ. And for those that have never surrendered to you, there is no hope for obeying without the Christ of obedience living in them. Just as my brother shared in his testimony before he was baptized, I pray today they would give their life to Jesus. Thank you for being our example of obedience and the grace we need to always obey and the love we have when we disobey that pulls us more to you and does not push us away. In your name we pray. And God's people said, amen.